Hi, and uh, welcome to the latest in our Sustainable Futures Career Conversations podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm here today with, with Hayden Morgan. Hayden, do you want to just introduce yourself? Hi, yeah, thanks, Paul. Uh, yeah, my name's Hayden Morgan, and I'm partner and head of Sustainable Finance Consulting at Pinson Masons, which is an international law firm. Fantastic. And you've had an interesting journey to get there. So yeah. that's what I want to sort of look at first up, is, is sort of early stages of, of your career and, and what brought you into the world of sustainability. Um, it's, it's a great question. I've had a slightly unorthodox career path, I guess one could say, um, in as much as I studied sustainability or um, environmental science at university straight into environmental consulting. So I was quite lucky from that respect back in the mid 90s, yep. um, doing a lot of sort of due diligence work for US private equity firms. So I always had that sort of financial aspect of it. Um, and throughout that sort of environmental consulting career, I've always been interested in how finance sort of interfaces with sustainability, not only just the risks, but also the potential sort of opportunities as well. Um, and as a result of that, uh, there was an opportunity. The UK government was setting up uh, the UK Green Investment Bank. Yeah. And I was working sort of behind the scenes in terms of various commissions with the government to get cross-party support for the establishment of the UK Green Investment Bank. I was lucky enough to be offered a role there when it was first been set up mm-hmm. back in 2012. And I was one of the first folk in there to develop how all the sustainability or ESG policies probably be called these days, yes. um, although we come on to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sort of in terms of embedding good practice and all various also statu- statutory instruments into that um, institution as it, as it grew out. So then I learned a lot about the insides of how investment committee works, portfolio management, project finance, fund management, investment banking, um, and really started to interface sustainability into all that sort of day-to-day activity. So I got a real good feel of how finance, finance works. And that I then was um, lucky enough to sort of be able to set up my own con- consultancy myself. So I founded a firm called Morgan Green Advisory, uh, which again, was fairly niche, mm-hmm. focusing around sustainable finance for financial sector organisations, just at the time when some of the regulations were coming to the fore and sustainability was starting to become much more mainstream. Um, and because of that work, I was work partnering with um, Pinter Masons, uh, the law firm, who were very keen to partner with um, folk like myself, yeah. um, professional advisors, basically. Pinter Masons is a bit different to normal law firms because they are professional services with law at the core. Okay. And so my sort of proposition fitted in quite nicely with that. Mm. And so there was the opportunity for us to initially partner and then uh, we joined forces at the start of this year, so about six months now, where I'm now a partner and leading a team now focused in the financial services sector, but not solely, not exclusively, yep. uh, looking to integrate best practice, good practice, beyond compliance, sustainability principles for, for our clients. Yep. And it's quite an interesting proposition because um, that interface between legal, financial and sustainability is, is quite a sort of distinctive proposition for us. And um, it seems to really resonate with our clients, but it's underpinned by robust sustainability science-based principles. Yeah. And I think that's what adds credibility and that sort of robustness. Yeah, and we'll come back and talk a bit more in detail, I'm sure, about that. I wanted to just sort of trace and, and, and partly picking up on that, that sort of uh, credibility or, or the, the, the underpinning of that, because that's something that's evolved, isn't it, over, over that course of that career from being a very compliance-led sector that we were in back in the mid-90s yep. through all of the different uh, iterations of sustainability and ESG. 
talk to me, if you would, about how that has felt from, from the inside in relation to, to the impact it's had on, on your career. You're absolutely right. When, when we first started out, certainly in the UK, it was the Environmental Protection Act 1990, which triggered a lot of this activity. And in particular, from my perspective, it was part 2A, being quite sort of technical about that. But that was the contaminated land regime at the time, uh, which meant, you know, polluter pays principles, but new acquisition of um, investments. And especially if you're a private equity firm or venture capital firm buying up a firm, you, you took on those liabilities. So it's very much a compliance regulatory risk aversion sort of um, assessment process that, that was um, in, in those days. Um, you also had in the environmental permit, permitting regime as well, which is very much around compliance. Um, that has obviously evolved, you know, c- cut to the present day, huge sort of turnaround in terms of the potential opportunity, which would be g- good to touch on. Yes. Um, but I, I think a penny really dropped for me when I was working with the Green Investment Bank, where there, there was actually a, a mandatory requirement to make a profit and that was actually built into statute. And so one of our mantras there was green and profitable. Okay. So you had to demonstrate green impact, but you had to have a, uh, a risk-adjusted commercial market-based return. Uh, and we, we, we were one of the few institutions to mix that also, that sort of public capital uh, cornerstone um, investments, mobilizing, leveraging in uh, private sector investment um, into project finance, for example but all of our projects had to be both green and profitable. Mm. So that demonstration effect that you could make commercial returns and have a green impact, in our case, or sustainability impact, um, that was a real exemplar to the rest of the industry and unlocked a lot of um, additional capital, indirect capital, into, for example, offshore wind in in the UK. Um, But that really, from from my perspective, uh, sort of rammed home the fact that sustainability also meant economic prosperity. And some of the new definitions of sustainability, and I touched on the fact I don't really like ESG, because ESG is is, is sort of okay, but I think the term needs a bit of, either either to be retired or a bit of reframing, because um, for me, true sustainability is this sort of interface between environmental, social, and economic, not governance necessarily. That economic bit often gets overlooked. But true sustainability m- means economic prosperity. Yes. And, and I think a lot of the detractors around ESG um, you know, are not aware that that true sustainability does mean making money, uh, you know, at the same time as being aware of your impact, both, both positive, positive and negative, yes. for environmental and social uh, you know, receptors as well. And, and you were at the relatively early stages in terms of, of that. Uh, importance of the financial sector, let's put it that way, started to really understand that yep. in the late noughties, early 2010s, I think. Until yep. then, it was it was quite a niche sector in terms of responsible investment was, was the sort of phrase that was used, I yep. think, at that time. In, in terms of, of how that's evolved over that period of time from, from a relatively niche market into dominating, in many cases, uh, large segments of the investment community, what do you think's driven that? What, what sort of are the, the drivers that you've seen to facilitate that? A number of factors, I think. I think um, in the early days, it was a lot of the big asset owners and institutional investors wanting to allocate at least some of their capital towards, as you mentioned, responsible investment. And then fund managers responding to that, setting up funds with that sort of label, and then looking at various underlying assets which fit the criteria or the mandate requirements for 
impact or responsibility, if you want to call it that, in, in them days. But it was very ill-defined. It wasn't a sort of exact science. Um, uh, it's moved on a lot since then. There, there's been a lot, as, as you know, as, as you know, around sort of ta the um, taxonomy coming out from the European Union, the Green Deal, and all the regulation coming out of Europe. And again, whilst that's got some detractors about around that being quite prescriptive, um, it has meant you know this debate, the quality of the debates, you know, moved on a, a, a complete different sort of um, shift in in terms of uh, where it has been. And and I think also going back to our previous point around, you can actually make. Uh, financial returns from sustainable um, investments, and I think now there's a there's a the institutional asset owners are shifting more and more capital towards sustainable investments, if you want to call it that in its broadest sense. Uh, fund managers are responding uh, to that, um, and I should dis make the distinction between passive fund managers and active fund managers. The passive ones set up, for example, trackers uh, that invest in listed equities, for example. Uh, that meet a set of criteria based on their disclosures. Um, and that's sort of okay, but you get some weird perverse sort of outcomes um, as a result of applying some of those criteria using a, a sort of algorithm. Um, but some of the more active uh, fund managers and including, for example, private equity and alternative managers um, and some public listed fund managers as well um, that apply this more active stewardship approach to actually achieve um, outcome. And I think this is going to be uh, an impact. And I think this is going to be more and more important as we focus on transition. So as we look in terms of um, transition towards a more sort of lower carbon, more sustainable on that pathway to net zero, that stewardship element, I think is going to be really important. But that um, requires a lot of skills and capacity, capability, understanding, uh, in, in stakeholder engagement and, and two-way dialogue. Yeah. And that is one of the sort of challenges, I think, uh, which no doubt you'll be particularly interested in, Absolutely. in terms of um, capability, capacity, upskilling, resourcing. That, that was going to be one of the things I, I wanted to, to touch on, and, and now is probably a good time to do that, which is around the, the role of a sustainability specialist within yeah. that. There, there are lots of skills that are required in that process. And, and I'm interested to know where your view of the, of the sustainability specialist sitting into that suite of, of skills that's required is. Yeah, I guess in my experience, there's a couple of angles on that. There's, um, again, in the past, the sustainability department or specialist was a bit of a standalone sort of, you know, used to hide under the stairs and, you know, wasn't allowed out every, you know, but, um, you know, allowed out maybe every now and then at the annual meeting or whatever. But I think that's, that's changed and evolved now. There's a recognition that, again, sort of true integration requires, you know, operational um, implementation across all different parts of a fund manager, for example, or in a corporate or in the, um, all the different sort of departments of that, of that organisation to integrate sustainability in all those different functions. And so that integrated approach and that holistic sort of thinking of sustainability is, is much more effective in achieving real world outcomes. Um, and again, I think that is a trend that we're seeing more and more is that understanding of this holistic interdisciplinary approach to sustainability. But that requires a lot of folk in the organization to, to one, sort of be aware of their role and their, their own contribution to sustainability, um, but also a lot, of, a lot of capacity building and um, um, training yep. of staff that don't have sustainability in their job titles, 
but probably should have sustainability in their job descriptions, for example. And I think going forward, um, again, true sustainability for an organisation to, to effectively transition requires everyone to understand what their role and contribution is in terms of towards the contribution towards that firm's, whatever it is, a corporate or an investment firm, uh, their strategy. Yeah. And that, that direct link and alignment of interest in, throughout the organisation is critical. That's going to take time to get there. And so that role of the sustainability um, sort of person is from going from a technical role to more of an advocate role, more of an influencer role in the organisations. And they're some of the skills, skill sets, that I think will you know, come to the fore. So, so again, I, I, I think I'm glad you picked up on that piece because I think that, that sort of fundamental to this is, is that marriage between technical and, and, and business, broader business skills. How important do you think it is it to have that technical background or it, it, the sort of understanding of, of how a business works more important? How, where's the balance for that? Well, I think you need both. Um, you need both the... From my perspective, I've got the technical understanding and I'm learning the business language. And certainly in my latter part of my career, understanding how business works, especially on the financial services element of it, has really helped me. Uh, and I've also helped um, colleagues to sort of understand and translate their own role and function from a perspective of sustainability. Um, but you still need that mixture of both. And, and now you're seeing the influx, which is great, by the way, of sort of um, mainstream, let's call them that, sort of from a financial perspective, um, old school sort of um, investors and financiers and wanting to learn more about sustainability, coming in to, you know, the, the roles that traditionally may not be held by a, a finance person. But again, that's great. So you're, see, you're seeing more and more chief sustainability officers that don't have necessarily that sort of really technical understanding and grounding, but that's fine because they're in that position of influence um, and leadership. And influence and leadership, I think, is a really important skills if we're going to, you know, like I say, meet our global goals. Absolutely. You talked before about opportunities and, and, and particularly in your current role, you're seeing that opportunity to, to influence uh, in a different sort of way than maybe was the case before. Just, just explore that, if you would, a little. Well, I guess, yeah, the opportunity is, again, um, it's around uh, this integrated approach with, with clients um, saying, yeah, there are risks associated with, with the global transition, but there are markets that will open up. There are new products and services that need to be developed to meet increased demand. Uh, stakeholders uh, will, you know, their, their interests will change and it's responding to those. So it's under, understanding this integrated holistic approach to sustainability um, is absolutely critical. Yeah. So, so yes, there are risks, and I, you know, I should just say, climate change in particular, it probably poses both the greatest risk to you know our, our, our sort of um, life on Earth, uh, but also potentially the greatest opportunity for a generation in terms of um, understanding where these new markets are, understanding new business models, understanding that the future is very uncertain, you know, but. That's fine. You need to be able to be agile. You need to be responsive and sort of flexible in, and also be comfortable in not knowing what the future holds, but that you've got a plan to respond to it. And so, you know, we talk, we talk in terms of scenario modeling, 
don't just look at the risks, also look at the opportunity. And that's one thing I'm really keen to engage with clients on. Uh, again, to break down different silos in organizations, to, to make sure that there is a strategic response, but it covers the opportunity as well for organizations. Yes. So when you're having those conversations with clients, who, who are you talking to? Is, is it the finance people? Is it the yeah, no, corporate responsibility? I think when I was in, um, when I was in financial services on the inside, it was mainly the, the sort of chief investment officer or um, investment committee um, or, or you know, um, the, the, the guys that were sort of making the investments, the deal teams. Increasingly, um, because now I'm in a law firm, it's actually the general counsel. Now that's quite interesting because general counsel often either sit on the board or are advising directly the board. So they have a lot of influence. And they also typically sign off on a lot of disclosures uh, made from a corporate perspective or a, a firm perspective, um, or um, the company secretary, and they, they often hold both roles as well. So um, I'm very comfortable talking to finance directors or chief financial officers. I'm also now increasingly comfortable talking and engaging with general counsel or chief legal representation. And again, between those two functions, they probably hold a lot of the influence in organizations. Um, but again, around, around disclosure, so a lot of the regulations that are upcoming or enforced now are around disclosing your performance or impact or whatever it might be. Disclosure is just tip of the iceberg, right? And this is, this is what firms are only starting to realize, uh, which is probably an intended consequence of, of these regulations. But I think it's interesting now because a, a lot of firms, there's a lot of discussion around how we're ever going to meet all these disclosure requirements for ISSB, Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, the incoming UK sustainability reporting uh, requirements. Um, and just from a data perspective or just from a KPI perspective, yet underneath, if you imagine an iceberg, disclosure is just the bit above the water you can see. Underneath that is all the internal processes and external stakeholder engagement you need to conduct in order to make those robust, uh, credible disclosures. And, and, and firms are starting to now realize that they're just not set up from a functional governance perspective to respond. And so a lot of the discussions I'm having, to your point, is around breaking down those silos and breaking down in, uh, sort of interdepartmental functions to get everyone together to say, look, you know, here's your strategy, you know, how do, how, do, how do you as head of HR or head of operations actually contribute towards meeting that strategy? And what do you and your team need to do? And, and there's not many sort of horizontal cross-cutting sort of, sort of um, requirements for firms because they're not designed like that. You know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's right from the sort of start of corporation and corporate law and everything else, firms are deliberately designed on a functional basis, you know. So um, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, discussion. And then when you see the penny drop in firms and, 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 and in clients when I'm talking, talking to, um, you know, heads of, they get it. They say, yeah, we understand this now. And that comes back to another sort of lesson, I guess, I've learned in terms of sustainability is huge in terms of a concept and it covers a whole bunch of stuff, you know, um, in terms of what firms need to respond to, their value chain, their stakeholder engagements, their internal processes, uh, the capital commitments they need to make. It's very complex. So there is a trick for sustainability professionals to make that as simple as possible and as easily digestible as possible 
um, for, for their counterparties or their, or their clients, or if you're working inside a firm for their own firms. And I think, again, that is a skill that's undervalued for sustainability professionals, is that making things simple and then actionable is, is actually more powerful than understanding all the technical detail in something. Really interesting point, and I, I think very uh, pertinent in terms of the background that people come at this from is, is whatever the background you have, technical or non-technical, that basic skill of, of being able to understand what is material to that business and what's not, and then uh, put that into a, a, a digestible format is, is key. Materiality there you touched on. Again, that's one of my <laughs> interesting perspectives on this. Um, and I've seen this through the development of, for example, the ISSB standards. Um, they have got a sort of accounting perspective on this, which is, which is, which is fine in terms of um, a, an issue's material if it leads a user or recipient to, 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 or an emission to come to an alternative view. Um, and it was linked to enterprise value, but it's not anymore. So it's basically, if, it, if, if um, an issue is not uh, published, and it will lead to a different decision, that's material. So that's their point. Um, I'm working on um, some other standards around sustainable finance. And this is around the International Standards Organization, ISO, um, new sustainable finance standard, which got published, and I've, I've been working on that. And it's uh, 32210 for those aficionados of ISO standards. Um, but the, the re reason I've mentioned that is, is material is, is more aligned to the double materiality aspect that sort of more, more integrated into European Union um, aspect of it. Now, this may sound like a bit of a technical sort of rabbit hole, but it's really important because materiality is, is critical to understanding and managing impact and business activities and for looking into the future scenarios, et cetera. And, and these differences are gonna cause a lot of, I would say, discussion going forward. They don't conflict, but they're not complementary. And um, so, like I say, you've got the ISSB standards, the European Union standards that, are, that have been published on a double materiality aspect, and then ISO standard, which looks to bring it all together. So the reason I mention the ISO standard is because that is a really useful framework for financial services organisations to approach sustainability and to integrate all these different, you know, not complementary aspects, including materiality. I'm going to go a slightly different direction, but it's, it's one I'm often thinking about is that this alphabetic spaghetti of, of acronyms and, and reporting standards and, and areas. Is that helpful or a hindrance? Or would, would anything where the developments that are happening have happened without them, but have they got out of control? Um, there is a little bit of out of control around the alphabetic spaghetti, uh, as you put it. Um, and I, to my point around making things simple, I think, again, there is, there is a, um, a trick there for sustainability professionals to interpret all these regulations and um, uh, initiatives and find the commonality between them and try to make sense of, so what does that mean for me and my operations and my organisation or my firm or my clients? And it's that interpretive bit, which I think is really uh, important for sustainability professionals. Um, I would also say, going back to the ISO standard I mentioned, we launched it in... Uh, in February this year, so about four months ago at Bloomberg. And before the launch, I was talking to a trustee of a, of a, of a fund, and he said to me, the last thing the world needs is another standard, right? What, what on earth is all this about? And then afterwards, so I was on stage, and I was talking through the benefits of it, 
Um, and there was other folk there from Bank of England and the FCA and, uh, you know, sort of, if not endorsing it, then at least supporting it. Yeah. Um, at the end of the session, the same guy came up to me and said, I completely get it now. Okay. I completely get it. The, what, you've, what you've developed, and not just me, but my um, other fellow experts, have, is a framework that organisations can use to slot in all the different other requirements, but um, in terms of a common governance internal um, architecture to respond to sustainability. Um, so I, I definitely recommend that, and I've got no, no sort of um, uh, uh, sort of in, invested interest exactly in, in, in promoting that standard. But it's it's an interesting one. It, it's been developed for four years or so. It's been a little bit below the radar, uh, but I think more and more it will become a useful reference in response to this maelstrom of incoming regulation That's requirements. That's maybe 14,001 did back in the late 90s exactly. when it came out. Yeah, no, interesting. Really useful. Thank you, Hayden. I'm going to sort of bring it back to, to sort of what, what's going on in sustainable, where it's going, and, and some of the ideas about how to develop a career within it. Um, so the, the first question in that context is, is what's next around the corner? What, what do you see coming uh, in the future? Certainly from a financial services perspective, um, there's, there's lots. There is this maelstrom, as I've been sort of describing it to, to, to others, of um, regulatory requirements, shifting stakeholder expectations, shifting capital allocation, and this paradigm shift that we're already starting to experience in terms of this transition that I mentioned. Um, so the, you, and you cannot make sense of this maelstrom because it's forever changing and um, the application of it is different for different firms depending on jurisdiction, size, um, investment sectors, whatever else it's like. There's so many variables. There's, there's probably thousands of variables to apply. So making sense of this maelstrom is going to be critical for sustainability professionals in the, in the financial sector. Um, but going back to our points earlier, there is not one size fits all to all this. And it requires uh, collaboration in order to make sense of this. Uh, sustainability folk are right in the middle of this maelstrom in a way, but in a good way, yeah. because they, they can, they've got insight into all different um, aspects of sustainability. Uh, so bringing in, like I say, um, folk from different departments in their firm, absolutely critical. Um, having stakeholder engagement. Stakeholder engagement is going to be more important going forward than it's ever have been, ever has been, sorry, for sustainability folk. Um, not least because it's a key component of this double materiality aspect I mentioned, which you'll hear more and more and more around. Um, but this, like I say, this um, maelstrom is going to affect every firm in every sector on a global basis. So there's opportunity there, you know, like I say, it's a new, it's a, it's a new world. Yeah. No. Fascinating. And I think probably a good place to, to stop on that sort of very positive opportunity note um, in terms of the skills that are going to be needed, both the technical and, and, and wider business skills. Thank you, Nathan. That's been fascinating. You. I hope you've enjoyed that as well. Thank you for listening and, and watching. Um, and I hope you've learnt as much as I have on that discussion. Thank you. Mm -hmm.